Hello, you're listening to an episode of Shadow Talk. I'm your host today, Victoria Austin. And on this episode, we have Demelza, Kim and Dylan joining me. It's very exciting to have you all. How's it going? Welcome, Dylan. First time. I mean, we're on the virtual podcast studio, but I might as well call it my virtual roasting tin because it is quite warm in here. But um, (laughs) the crack on, I guess, with all the stories we've got um, in store for us today. So I think first up, we wanted to to kind of dive into a development that that our colleagues had covered last week in Dallas. And that was the news that Garmin, who suffered from an attack, which took many of their services offline last week, has since then um, paid the ransom to the attackers, but it's unconfirmed how much was exactly paid. So the reports indicate that Garmin received a decryption key to recover its files, which then pointed to the possibility that they had paid, but Garmin has neither confirmed or denied that. So that's just a small update and it actually leads us nicely onto the next story, which um, involves a US travel management company, which was also hit by a ransomware attack, um, though, yeah, this time it was um, a travel company called Carlson Wagon Lit Travel, so CWT. So I was wondering if Demelza could just run us through what happened to CWT this week. Yeah, so CWT were targeted last week with Ragnarokka ransomware, which is generally known to steal data for extortion purposes as well as encrypting files, um, and it also uh, uses um, and accessing their functioning backups. So um, it's quite a basic ransomware, but it is definitely one that is quite prolific. Um, so in, in many ways, an, another ransomware attack, but this case is so interesting because the negotiations between a CWT representative and a criminal group, and sorry, and the criminal group has actually become public. Um, normally we're lucky to find out how much was paid, um, but that's about all the details we can really expect. So it's just really exciting to get unprecedented insight into what a negotiation can actually look like. The ransomware that um, we've seen claimed that the group had stolen about two terabytes of files, including financial reporting and employee and client PII data. So this would be a pretty huge breach. Uh, they also claimed to have, to have encrypted corporate files um, and taken 30,000 computers offline. I've seen sources um, kind of refute this um, and claim the real number was much lower. But that's kind of by the by. Um, either way, due to public Bitcoin records, we can see that ransom was paid. Um, and as we typically see in official statements, CWT confirmed that the attack didn't compromise any customer or traveler personal data. Um, but it's really, really interesting that we could actually see at a granular level what these, what these negotiations actually look, actually look like. Yeah, I think in particular, we were able to see the, the chats between the corporate and the attacker, which is definitely a first, as you said. Um, yes, and I think that conversation itself, I wonder why that was so public. Is there something that, that is different about that? Yeah, so we haven't seen many details about um, where the actual conversation happened. Um, there, there are screenshots publicly available on various press outlets that we can see that the negotiation happened on an online chat room. But the fact that these are available suggests that this isn't, you know, kind of a software that belongs to the criminal group. So that's definitely a detail that I would love to know more about. So we'll see if more details come out. Um, the ransomware group um, actually demanded $10 million originally. Um, and the the rep who was dealing with the negotiation from from, C, from CWT um, cited recent profit loss to actually offer 4.5 million, so a really huge, huge reduction. And incredibly, uh, the the the, uh, the criminal group 
agreed as long as the payment was made in Bitcoin within 24 hours. The screenshots I've seen are kind of incredible. Um, the attacker thanks the CWT rep for their patience um, and confirms the uh, decryption key um, will be sent and all the data that was, that was taken would also be deleted to prevent leaks. Um, I quote, it's a pleasure to work with professionals. So, I mean, it, it's kind of amazing to actually see these, these conversations happening, um, especially to remember that, you know, there's a human on the end of this, of this attack. So really fascinating stuff. Yeah, I think in particular, the payment itself, like, as you said, it was 10 million and it kind of got reduced to 4.5 million. Um, I mean, that is a lot of money. And of course, CWT have gone and, and paid that to kind of ensure that results uh, their services resume. And I'm just thinking like, what sort of message does that send to the rest of the industry? Like, surely that perpetuates crime and it also sort of encourages other criminal groups to say, hey, like this is an easy way to make some money. What oh, definitely. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting that they were able to bargain down using COVID as an excuse. I wonder whether it kind of, because we live in these exceptional times, whether that would fly in a different circumstance. But yeah, this is definitely a blow to the community of thought that you should never, ever pay ransom. Um, and I think I do worry that um, the fact that we're seeing cyber criminal groups accept lower rates, um, that this might actually encourage victims to go for the payment option if they think that they can actually bargain down um, the price of getting their data back. Um, there's quite an interesting link to here to the TravelX ransomware attack. Um, it's not huge amounts of comparison, obviously, apart from the they're both in the travel sector. Um, but in that case, um, the Sodna Kibi ransomware um, was bargained down from I think, I think six million to two point three million dollars. So we're seeing that kind of this has this has has happened before and it could happen again. Yeah, I do worry that um, the victims will increasingly see payment as an option. Yeah, I think the TravelX. There's also a link for our next story, um, which is interesting. So we've kind of dropped Travelix's name quite a bit in this podcast. But um, the next story relates to a data leak impacting 900 Pulse secure VPN enterprise servers. So it was uh, released this week uh, um, in reports that a threat actor had posted a list of credentials associated with the Pulse secure VPN uh, servers, um, which then appeared to have running software or firmware suspect susceptible to the CVE 2019-11510. So the VPN software is often used as a gateway, gateway into corporate networks. So um, yeah, Kim, I was just wondering if you could just detail the what sort of data was leaked and where was it leaked to? So yeah, this one has got a lot of attention already this week. It's only been reported for a couple of days, but um, yeah, people are really interested in its impact. Um, so the data was leaked to a Russian language forum called XSS. Um, that's a pretty popular forum. You'll find a lot of highly capable threat actors within there and a lot of people who will have many uses for this kind of data i'm sure so serious that it's gone in into that forum in particular um, according to the reporting the kind of details that have been leaked are the ip addresses of the uh, pulse secure vpn servers um, what firmware version those vpn servers are using the ssh keys for the servers a list of all the local users and their password hashes but more dangerously you've got in there as well admin account details and then last vpn logins for people which includes their usernames and their passwords in clear text which is scary 
yeah, super, super scary. And I think in particular, yeah, just to kind of support your point, um, I think typically on this podcast, we see data leaks, which are um, reported in a sort of white hat sort of fashion. But in this particular sense, it was leaked to a criminal forum, um, which demonstrates that the user or the threat actor um, wants it to be used uh, for nefarious purposes, which is, yeah, scary, I guess, to kind of echo that point again. Um, I guess in terms, so the data has been leaked um, and we know it's linked to a a CVE. Um, I guess what's the mitigation advice here for this one? Mitigation advice is always patch your servers. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, these servers are used amongst a number of organisations and so those organizations need to ensure that any servers that are vulnerable to this particular um, vulnerability need to be updated immediately. Um, It's been reported that there's no workaround for the vulnerability, so patching is really the only option. And um, for these companies that have been affected in the latest breach, even once they have patched, then they need to make sure that any passwords are changed on those accounts where, where the passwords are in clear text so that can avoid a threat actor however they've come across that data using those credentials to gain access into the networks yeah and i think so another kind of um link that and this is why i brought up travelx again is kind of just demonstrating the impact and the severity of this i guess is that in january travelx systems were sort of taken offline as a, as a result of a malware attack Um, And later analysis of the incident um, by security researchers linked that um, that TravelX had failed to patch its Pulse Secure VPN servers as early as November 2019, which left TravelX vulnerable as a result. So even though they have been given warnings, um, um, they were still vulnerable. Um, So I think going, I mean, the TravelX incident was back in 2019. Um, We've just had this uh, breach of data as well as it of the Pulse VPN service being linked to a CVE. So I think this just, I guess the TravelX is sort of like a case study in that sense to kind of demonstrate the damage that can be done to a business. Um, and I guess overall it's just serve as a warning, but at the same time, um, we see cases like this arise all the time on podcasts, so yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure it won't be the last one we see either. Unfortunately. <laughs> So the next story relates to Ghostwriter, the disinformation and influence campaign. So FireEye this week linked a series of operations to disinformation campaigns that aligned to Russia's security interests. So I think it was just us kind of worth going into the details of that operation. Um, and I think Kim was just going to walk us through that one. Yeah, so FireEye have been tracking what they're calling um, inauthentic personas. And through following those online profiles, they've been able to link a number of operations um, together under the campaign that they're calling Ghostwriter. Um, They've tied together these incidents based on overlapping behavioural characteristics um, and rather than referring to it as an act or a group in itself because they they don't know who or what or how many people are behind it. So since 2017 FireEye have linked 14 operations to Ghostwriter. Um, Those operations are mainly aimed at discrediting NATO, so the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, 
um, but they've also included like anti-US themes and using the COVID pandemic as well, like everyone is, to push their push their kind of anti-NATO narrative. Um, so, for example, they blamed uh, NATO troops for bringing the first case of COVID to Lithuania. Um, so this year, FireEye have observed ghostwriter targeting audiences in Lithuania, Latvia and Poland. Um, so whoever is behind this, they will create a false narrative, accompany that with some false documents, like maybe official correspondence, some falsified images to back up what they're, what they're uh, selling. And then they post those uh, details onto compromised but legitimate third-party websites. And then they use these um, inauthentic personas and pose as locals in those countries or journalists and then re-reference all of that material to try and get the uh, disinformation spread as widely as possible. Um, so they've done that, but they've also interestingly used um, some spoof emails to do the same thing for some more more direct marketing. Um, so the aim seems to be to undermine local support within Lithuania, Latvia and Poland for NATO. Um, but these tactics could be used in any country really to spread that message. Mm, I think when you just spoke about how they use spoof emails, that was that's the bit where I guess they're harnessing cyber like tools and tactics. And at first when I was reading the report, it kind of, I was like, this is disinformation, but how, how does this have a relationship with cyber security or cyber? Um, and yeah, I guess the way that they're kind of uh, kind of spreading that message is, is through uh, emails. So quite um, a nice, like, well, not nice, but like it just demonstrates the relationship between disinformation and cyber right now. And it might get a bit, um, might, might see similar patterns over the next few months as well. Yeah, and FireEye commented in their report that they believe the people who are behind this are pretty highly capable. Um, so they are probably using similar skills just in a different vein um, for this campaign. Great. So yeah, that, that is a nice um, story to kind of include in, today, in today's episode. Next, we have for the first time, the EU has issued sanctions on Russia and Chinese uh, individuals for major cyber attacks. And we have Dylan on the line to discuss the impact, effectiveness, and reasoning behind this. So yeah, Dylan, I was wondering if you could just talk us through what happened this week. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it was actually uh, last Thursday, the 30th, is when these sanctions came into effect. And they were based off uh, a framework which was adopted in uh, May of 2019. So this has clearly been in the works for a while. Uh, and so they have enacted, the EU has enacted sanctions against uh, six individuals and three entities. Uh, the individuals there, two of them are, are Chinese and uh, are linked to APT10, also known as Red Apollo. Uh, as for the individuals, four of them are Russian and they are described as a human intelligence support officer of the main directorate of the general staff of the armed forces of the Russian Federation. So otherwise known as just group 74455 of the GRU. Uh, and then the organizations have one in China, one in Russia, but also one organization in North Korea, which has been linked to uh, Lazarus Group. Um, and so it's quite interesting to see that they're implementing this, uh, these sanctions for the first time ever. It kind of implies a, a change of direction in approach to tackling ransomware and cybercrime in general. Uh, 
So some of the why about why they seem to do it is there's a lot of language around targeted restrictive measures. So they're attempting to have a, a deterrent and dissuasive effect and should be distinguished from attribution of responsibility to a third state. So it's quite interesting, I think, to see that they're linking uh, individuals and groups, but meaning, maintaining the sort of diplomatic approach, which we see often with cyber uh, events, is that not directly attributing it to a nation state as you know, attribution for uh, cyber attacks, opportunities, whatever you want to call them, can be quite murky. Uh, I think why this has been done, it seems to be that the EU is trying to align with the uh, cyber framework, which is already in place in the United States. Uh, the US has been implementing sanctions for cyber attacks for a little while, and some of the uh, individuals and organizations on this list of EU sanctions are already being sanctioned uh, by the United States. So it seems that it's uh, sort of to align and have a more continuous uh, framework for tackling cyber crimes like these, regardless of which geography we're in. And actually, interestingly enough, uh, in the aftermath of this coming out, the British government has also said that they have recently implemented their own framework for uh, for sanctions. I don't think they've acted on them yet, but it's interesting, interesting to know that they are there. And it seems that this is the direction we're going to be going to be moving in for a while. I think um, in terms of like the amount, I guess you spoke about the, the first time it's come into effect, but also the amount of um, time it must take to kind of attribute these individuals to these campaigns as well. You know, you need a, a lot of evidence to make those claims. So um, they're very substantive in this case. And then I guess one thing as well, we kind of talk about whether this is, send, like how effective will these sanctions be, I guess? Is it more just sending a message or will they come into effect um, in, in reality? So again, something to kind of watch there. Yeah, well, I mean, as you say, they, it definitely takes quite a while to to get implemented. Uh, and in in the notice of the sanctions, explicitly given as examples of what these are in response to, are WannaCry, NotPetya, and Operation Cloudhopper, all of which happened in the summer of 2017. So it clearly takes a while to get the ball moving on these things. As for what sort of an impact it'll have, I think you know we need to sort of just wait and see a little bit, but. It will certainly be interesting, I feel, against uh, ransomware attackers as, you know, any group which may potentially be linked to any of the, the nine entities or individuals listed in this sanctions notice, you know, you wouldn't be able to actually make any ransom payments to those entities that would be prohibited by the sanction. Uh, obviously, you know, cyber criminal actors are ingenious and creative and, and very professional in their approach, so they'll likely find a way to work around it, but it'll definitely be, I think this is probably going to be a moment of sort of development of what we're going to see happening in the future. There'll have to be a lot of response to this and, you know, a bit of back and forth between security and uh, malicious actors, as always. Yeah, but it's definitely welcomed as well. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Uh, Dylan, I'm curious, um, do you know what kind of impact Brexit's going to have on, on this whole kind of new strategy? Because I know that the UK were kind of almost, in, almost internet instrumental um, in pushing this through for the EU and now they're kind of setting up their own framework do you know if there's going to be any scope for them to kind of work together and be kind of be as one or is it similar to the US where people may have similar sanctions but they're not necessarily so it, it, in the statement put out by uh, the foreign secretary, it says that these sanctions uh, referring to the EU ones are now in force in the UK. So I think what it'll be is we've adopted these EU sanctions, uh, you know, as they're sort of our closest regulatory um, equivalent, and we'll probably keep them in place until the, the UK framework is, is well established and ready to implement their own sanctions, uh, replicate existing ones, or maybe move ahead with some new ones. 
but yeah definitely ask kind of the art industry as well what sort of happens post brexit when it comes to sanctions so yeah something to explore further on yeah definitely something to wait and uh, wait and see how it, how it goes next year one, one thing which i did actually think was quite interesting about this sanctions list which uh, has been picked up a little bit on twitter but I haven't seen covered too much elsewhere is that the the reasons given for uh, levying a sanction against group 74455 uh, they list a few aliases they say the actor publicly known as sandworm and one of the aliases they list is olympic destroyer uh, which was responsible for the attacks against the pyeongchang olympics in korea so that actually isn't uh, a link which has been made before as far as i'm aware uh, but again you know it does fall short of directly uh, attributing those attacks to the Russian Federation, obviously. But it'll be interesting to see if anything comes of that, if people pick up on that link or if there's any sort of retro retrospective analysis into the Olympic destroyer malware now that this um, this link appears to be appears to be made a, made a little bit more confidently. Very interesting. So I think that is a wrap for this week. Um, lots of my stories there for kind of our listeners so yeah dylan this is your first podcast so really thank you for joining us well thank you for having me of course um so yeah for our listeners as always you can um follow more of our stories which can be read at resources.digitalshadows.com um we hope you have a nice week and thank you for listening